I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And now, Livewire presents poorly cast audiobooks. In this installment, Gary Busey reads Judy Bloom's Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. Yeah, so first we went to the ladies' lingerie department. <laughs> and my mother, she told the sales lady that said, we want to see a bra for me, okay? She took one look and said, we've been better off in the teen department where they have bras in very small sizes. Oh my God, I almost died, okay? D-I-E, I died, who? Dame Judi Dench reads A Sure Thing by Snooky. Yum, Johnny Hawks tasted like fresh gorilla. Any juice head will get some nut shrinkage and back knee. I mean, he had an okay body, naturally toned abs. I could pour a shot of tequila down his belly and slurp it out of his belly button without getting splashed in the face. And Ricardo Montalban reads from Elizabeth Gilbert's Eat, Pray, Love. Oh, it was such an exquisite and lucky moment in my life to be sitting right in front of this man. I loved every word out of his mouth. I wanted to lean my head back onto his old lap and let him pour his eloquent curses into my ears forever. Forever. And now, the most audacious combination yet. It's like peanut butter and sashimi, like talent and a Kardashian. It's Turner and Hooch meets Lerner and Lowe. It's, it's... From the beautiful Aladdin Theater in Portland, Oregon, it's Livewire, the show that just completely creeped itself out with that Montalban thing. Tonight, author Steve Almond and Pulitzer Prize winner Jennifer Egan and music from Wild Ones. That's tonight on Livewire Radio. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Courtney Hommeister. And we also have comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to. Poet Scott Poole with What I Learned Tonight wherein Scott sits in our audience, and in just one hour, the amount of time it took Henry James to write just one very long sentence that will torture English majors for the rest of their lives. He writes a poem that encompasses all the lessons he's learned during the show. And music from our house band, Ralph Huntley and the Mutton Chops. Thanks, Ralph. I mentioned we were going to have Steve Almond on. He's actually reading a smut manifesto tonight that you're going to want to stick around for, especially you, FCC. <laughs> and we also, of course, have Pulitzer Prize winner Jennifer Egan, author of A Visit from the Goon Squad. Um, and we have, yes, we have all these wonderful writers because we are here uh, our second week uh, at Wordstock, the festival of the book, 
And it's not just a festival that celebrates reading, it celebrates writing too. There are lots of workshops and panels where writers talk about what they do and how they do it to a lot of very enthusiastic aspiring writers. And this got me thinking about writing and whether it's an appealing game to get into these days. Everyone dreams of being a novelist, but I know some novelists and almost every one of them has to have a second job on the side, like teaching or writing advertising copy or neurosurgery. And you could go into journalism, but here is the problem with that. Salaries for journalists have gone from like eight martini lunches in 1998 to, oh my God, you're so adorable. Are you reusing that Ziploc bag? Um, it's an odd trajectory, especially since we have become, in the past 15 years, a culture that voraciously, insatiably consumes written content. Just try to think back to before the internet, if you can remember that. Do you remember how much content you consumed in a day? You might wake up and read the newspaper. Remember those? Oh, look, dear. It's a newspaper. I used to read them periodically. I'm sorry. In any case, so you might read that for 20 minutes with your coffee, and then uh, you'd go to work, and here's the weird part. You would work all day. All day. Does anyone remember what that's like? And then on your way home, you might listen to the radio, and then you'd watch a sitcom about attractive 30-somethings living in completely unrealistically sized New York apartments, and then you'd go to bed. Now we consume content from the moment we wake up on our smartphone to reading the paper on our iPad to listening to podcasts on the way to work to reading blogs and clicking links on Facebook to videos of cats falling off of things and links on Twitter. And they all lead to the same thing, content that's been written by someone, except for the videos of cats falling off of things. And the cats should really work out some sort of residual thing from those, but that's a whole other issue that they should work out themselves. Now the people who own those websites... They're doing very well for themselves. Ariane Huffington made $315 million from the sale of HuffPost to AOL. YouTube, which features user-creative content, bought by Google for $1.6 billion. Facebook, supposedly worth $50 billion. The amount that the creators of content get for those sites, anywhere from $0 for the 6,000 bloggers on HuffPost, to a lowly pay-per-click paycheck on YouTube, to just the pleasure of being liked on Facebook. <laughs> now, there should be a fairly equal symbiotic relationship between those sites and the people who create the content for them, right? Like, no one could get to the content without the website, that's true, but no one would come to the website if they weren't clamoring for creative content, and yet somehow the content creators, in most cases, writers, are getting the shaft, and not the enjoyable kind of shaft starring Richard Roundtree, <laughs> the bad kind of shaft starring the shaft. Max Schulman, who was an early TV writer and novelist, had one piece of advice for aspiring writers. Marry money. And he was probably right. There's a book called Characteristics of the Creative Individual. It was written by a man named Eugene Rodsepp. And in it, he said that creative people tend to believe that good work is a reward in and of itself. So, therefore, they might be less apt to seek financial rewards like, say, Arianna Huffington. So what's the solution? So maybe it's time for writers to unoccupy the web, or at least the web of freeloader billionaires. So you can post your Facebook status for free, that's fine, although it'll probably use later in a feminine hygiene ad produced by Mark Zuckerberg, but that's your choice. But don't write a thought-provoking 2,000-word essay on what positions the original Star Trek cast would play if they were a 1970s ABA basketball team and just give that gold away for nothing. <laughs> Prove Eugene Rodsepp wrong and find someone who recognizes the value of creative work and ask for what you're worth, writers. Because... Because without you, the internet would be a pretty terrible place. Actually, it already is a pretty terrible place, but it would just be terribler. <laughs> so
So tonight's musical guest uh, formed just two years ago after lead singer Danielle Sullivan and keyboard player Thomas Himes played together in the band Eskimo and Sons. And then when that band ended, they just wanted to keep playing together, and so they did, and they formed Wild Ones. This fall, they're touring the West Coast with Youth and Typhoon. Please welcome Wild Ones to Livewire. You guys totally psyched me out. You had one of those Jennifer Egan song pauses in your song. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thank you very um, much. Uh, so, Danielle Sullivan, you're the lead singer of the band. That is correct. And there's a, a lot of buzz about the band for lots of reasons, but people talk about your voice quite a bit. Um, and they try to describe it. They say it's it's crisp, it's like a bell, it's like a cymbal, it's Joanna Newsomey, except not annoying. Um, <laughs> have you had vocal training? 
Um, no, I've never had vocal training. I grew up singing along to Disney songs in the shower. So, so that's vocal training in itself. Right. <laughs> Which Disney songs? Let's see. Um, huge fan of Ariel. Sure. You guys are familiar. Yes. Little Mermaid. Pocahontas, anyone? Uh, Colors of the Wind. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> I read that you were sort of coming into this band, you, Danielle, were kind of terrified to write your own songs, and yet you just went ahead and did it. So how did you get past that fear? You know, it was in great part due to my bandmate here, Thomas Himes, a lot of encouragement, a lot of uh, positive reinforcement, Mm -hmm. and yeah, just taking that leap. I knew that it was the right thing, I guess. It was time. So what did you discover after you wrote these songs? You know, it, I don't write the songs on my own. It's definitely a joint, joint project between all five of us. But, uh, you know, I just, I have been growing so far, and I feel still like a beginner. Even though we've written an EP, I still feel like I'm just starting and getting better with every song that we write. Together. And you're working on an LP. We are, as well. yes. It's really exciting. We're over halfway finished, and it's due out in springtime in mm-hmm. March. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Thank you. So we'll definitely look forward to that. And you are touring uh, this fall a, a tour with Typhoon yes. and Youth. Um, because it's Wordstock, just one more question. Um, what was the first book? That had a, that you recall that had a really big impact on you. Uh, East of Eden, by Steinbeck, is wow. my favorite book of all time. Yeah, I'm a huge Steinbeck fan. Mm-hmm. I wish he was my grandfather. In fact, it's not possible. <laughs> it's not. It's not. You're a youngin. Uh, well, that was a beautiful song. You're going to come back and sing for us later, ladies and gentlemen. Wild ones. Thank you. You're listening to Livewire Radio, music tonight brought to you by Dave's Killer Bread and the bread of the week, robust raisin. Don't let the raisins and cinnamon fool you. This bread can build a barn in a day and teach your kid to play the piano. (laughs) Dave's Killer Bread, just say no to bread on drugs. We'll be right back. and welcome to Embossments and Epaulettes, your broadcast source for matters both literary and profound. This week finds us in the regrettably American city of Portland, Oregon, for their yearly literature fete, Woodstump, or some such thing. With me is Gramsford Stems, Oxford scholar and Virgil to our Dante in this bewilderingly dark circle of, well, something. Uh, Splendid introduction, Bitsy. Oh, you're most welcome. Now, you're here to uh, help us decipher some of these ghastly new American genres. First up, the post-romance genre. What in God's name? Yes, well, it seems readers are growing weary of tales of pitching woo. The post-romance genre takes place about a a year after the romance novels traditionally end, you say. (laughs) But uh, <clears throat> the characters have finished making love on sandy beaches and they now bicker constantly in the veg aisle. <clears throat> Jennifer Egan's Another Argument About Nothing covers that subject rather extensively. Oh, where is- 
is a good place for uh, new readers to start. Well, Steve Allman's Sex or Taco Night is a personal favourite of mine. Uh, it's a harrowing, no-win ultimatum threatens to ruin one couple's Tuesday, which, as you know, is traditionally taco night on this side of the pond. Is it really? Well, I'd have thought hoagie or a submarine sandwich for Tuesday. Yes, yes well, agreed, of course, but uh, also popular are Egan's infrequent mouth kisses and not while the cat is watching. Oh. Right. <laughs> Those sound unpleasant. <laughs> Let's move on. What's new in the world of the macabre? I'm told zombies are rather the in thing now. <laughs> no, zombies are done, all right. Werewolves finished. The industry has exhausted its supply of literary monsters, largely because the face of horror has changed. Well, to what? Well, in this electronic age, what people fear the most is all technological, you say. Things like Facebook unfriending, uh, uh, accidental reply, all emails, and... Uh, 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 Exceedingly brusque text messages. Oh, I'm chilled to the bone. Oh, yes, I'm trembling in my tweeds. <clears throat> the best example of this frightening new genre is Chelsea Kane's Unfollow Me to Hell, Terror Knows No Character Limit. Mm. <clears throat> Terrifying. Any new genres for younger readers? Well, IA is really hot right now, Bitsy. Oh, don't you mean YA, Gramsci? Young adult fiction? No, 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 IA. Irresponsible adult fiction. <laughs> they're, they're like children, except they can drink. Uh, and after drinking, order books online at all hours of the night, uh, or at least that is the hope. Oh, Fascinating, Gramsci. Any recommendations? Yes. Uh, Craig Thompson's A Refrigerator Full of Mustard and uh, Jonathan Franzen's Two Semesters is Enough, Dad, have been... They've, they've been getting a lot of attention. Well, this has certainly been enlightening. Please join us next week on Embossments and Epaulets for the conclusion of our Portland visit, wherein we'll profile the 17 best places to go for meat pies and seasonal affective disorder. I'm Bitsy Kippington Chumbly with Gramsford Stems. Good night. That was Trisha Ferguson and Andrew Harris. Our next guest is the author of 10 books, countless essays, and a number of incendiary articles and letters to editors. He once verbally sparred with Sean Hannity, only to get his mic turned off. They may have made out later, according to him. His newest book is a collection of stories called God Bless America. He's here at Wordstock to read from his book and participate in various panels, including Radical Disclosure, The Writer as American Citizen. And tonight he's giving us a preview of his performance uh, on the What's the Literary Sex Hang-Up panel. And if you're listening with small children uh, or you work for the FCC, you might want to consider turning down the volume for about five minutes. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Steve Almond to Livewire. <laughs> Why I write smut, a manifesto. Because I've devoted perhaps 80% of my adult waking hours to thinking about sex, and it seems dishonest to pretend otherwise in my work. Because human beings are never more alive to their own hope and shame and fear than when they are naked and aroused, and because the same must therefore be true of our characters who are nothing more than poorly disguised versions of ourselves. Because I'm really tired of seeing sex used to sell SUVs and underarm deodorant and crappy light beer, rather than being portrayed as a natural, thank you, that's a beer drinker. <laughs> rather than being portrayed as a natural and sometimes even wholly human pursuit. Because... Ladies and gentlemen, my father. <laughs> because I have accumulated over the years such a tremendous surplus of sexual humiliation 
that it seems almost stingy of me not to re-gift some of it to my readers. Because I happen to agree with Freud's naughtiest disciple, Wilhelm Reich, who argued that a true political revolution would only be possible once sexual repression was overthrown, which pretty much rules out the Tea Party as a true political revolution. <laughs> because boy, is that a movement that needs to get laid. Because I'm now married with two small children and thus writing about sex often constitutes the closest I can get to having sex. I enjoy your enjoyment of my suffering. Because President Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky did have sexual relations, God bless them. And while I could care less about the big phony scandal that story became, I am interested in the sweet and deranged version of love that passed between them. Aren't you? Because I'm really tired of having to listen to well-meaning religious folk misquoting God about how the rest of us should use our genitals. Because both my parents are, in fact, psychoanalysts. And despite what you are all now thinking, which is basically, wow, you must be a really crazy person, which is a very interesting thought for you to have, by the way, and something we might want to talk about a bit later in the session. The one lesson my parents managed to impart as I lay those many afternoons on the analytic couch that was, in fact, the only piece of furniture in our living room is that our libidinal drives are not some bright new user option, but an essential part of our beings, an inborn riot of wants and counter-wants that we can never control entirely. And because, as a writer, I'm interested in the loss of control, in the danger of forbidden thought and feeling, it strikes me as utterly foolish, just from a practical perspective, not to write about sex. Why skip over the part almost guaranteed to teach you something new about yourself? Because I'm tired of living in a culture that allows children to fire make-believe glocks but freaks out at the first sign of a naked boob. Because I just really love being able to write off lube as a business expense. Just love that. Because our best writing resides in the senses, and sex invokes all five of our senses, at least if you're doing it right. I guess you are. Because though I watch pornography and am terrifically involved with it for about two and a half minutes, I am most often made sad by pornography not simply because it involves the self-exploitation of people who probably have suffered a good deal of misfortune, and not simply because porn stars can perform in manners that often seem like physiological, geometrical, even gravitational impossibilities, and thus make me feel like the abject sexual nebbish that I surely am, but because porn stars are actors being paid most often to simulate pleasure, they drain sex of its single most vital aspect, the intimate vulnerabilities that bring us to the act in the first place, the drama of our imperfect bodies as we seek to make a communion of our desires. Because I believe literature's central purpose is not to pretend we don't have bodies and their consequent needs, but to make us feel less alone with those needs. Because the Puritans themselves don't kid yourselves, were total horn dogs <laughs> who wanted nothing more than to tear off those long black robes and suffer a spiritual crisis. <laughs> and because when I write about sex, I'm writing ultimately about a dream that begins with the Puritans, that we the people of this great and troubled land will at last forgive ourselves the lust and loneliness that reddens our blood and we'll seek a final remedy in the warm temple of one another's bodies. Who's with me? Steve Allman.
Steve Almond, as assisted by horny audience. <laughs> Excellent. Um, well, I just wanted to talk briefly about the new book. The new book is God Bless America. And it seems uh, appropriate also that you're on a panel uh, tomorrow at Wordstock uh, on writer as citizen, because this book is sort of, you, you cross this line, there are a lot of writers who are, who are just maybe short story writers or fiction writers, but you also write a lot about politics. Yeah, I mean, I write about, I like to think of it as writing about morality, because I'm pretentious. Um, <laughs> but also because, like, I don't think people at this point need to be told, uh, like, I think politics has become this kind of, um, like, athletic event or sports event on cable TV, but, but beneath politics is how we're going to treat one another as citizens, is, is morality. And that's the thing that, the, that kind of breaks my heart. People sometimes think the title of the book is ironic, like, oh, almonds being snarky about patriotism. I love America. W where else but in America could I read what I just read on public radio? <laughs> I mean, um, and we have the greatest... Uh, ideals and values in the abstract of any country in the history of our species, but we just, we don't live up to it in a day-to-day -day way. We, we, and I think literature has something to do with that. I think its job is to make people feel more than they did before, which is a moral act, and to make people imagine the suffering uh, and, and the ecstasies of other people. Well, and so, and the book is... God Bless America, and it's a book of short stories, which you have That's where the money is. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I'm interested. You're, just, it's, you're such a sellout. You wrote a book of short stories. I'm a slut. No, no I, you know, stories are my first love, and a good short story is, is just constructed to, to, to implicate the reader emotionally. You know, it, it's like the place, it's like a great pop song where you can just try to break somebody's heart. And, and that's what you're doing. You're just jury-rigging reality and your imagination to try to make an emotional impact on the reader. So that's like, if, if people would pay me enough, that's all I would write. Well, uh, it's, it's a very good book. The book is God Bless America. The author is Steve Almond. Thanks so much for joining us, Steve. <laughs> Good evening. Uh, welcome to the Westmoreland chapter of Canines for Classics, a monthly book club. I'm your host for the evening, Roscoe. As you can see, I got a new chew toy so uh, to keep my teeth white <laughs> and keep your paws off of it. I'm looking at you, Captain Magic. I wouldn't go near that thing. I'm a rawhide man almost exclusively. It's the almost that worries me, Captain Magic. If you need something to chew on, there's a copy of Twilight in the corner. All right, uh, we are welcoming a new member I met at the dog park last week. Peppermint, everybody. Hey, hey, everybody. Um, what I can tell you about myself, I'm a West Highland Terrier. I like Elizabethan love stories, running on the beach, and spinning around seven times before I lie down. Welcome, Peppermint. Hi. Hi, Hi Peppermint. Hi. Hi, Peppermint. Hi. Hi, Peppermint. Hi. And uh, we're proud to welcome back uh, Teacup, Samson, and Applesauce. Getting fixed is always a journey, and we're glad yours has led us back to us. Applesauce, kudos on wearing the cone. I wouldn't have had the balls. Literally. Uh, now, Applesauce, why don't you come up here and introduce our special guest. Uh, hey, everybody. Can you hear me through the cone? Because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm getting an echo in here. Hey, anyway... Uh, Steve Almond is my favorite author. Uh, candy Freak is very close to my heart, as I, too, love candy. So, uh, like today, I totally got into a bag of Swedish fish. And uh, the wrapper was my favorite part, as usual. Yeah. Anyway, please give a warm welcome to Steve Almond. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, this is a lot of dogs. Are, are, there any, are there any people here? I'm just seeing a lot of dogs. I have a question. I mean, in your story, God Bless America, when the character of Billy plays Willie Loman in acting class, is all that just a metaphor for America being an obsolete relic of past generations? You're a pretty dog, aren't you? Such a pretty girl. Yeah, I 
know I'm a pretty girl. I, I get that a lot. But the metaphor... Do you want me to rub your belly? No, I want to talk about, you know, if you think America can dig itself out of this post-industrial... Who's, yes, yes, who? I want you to rub my belly. Rub my belly. Who's rub my got be- a belly? I've got a belly. I've got a belly. Uh, 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 Mr. Almond? Well, look at you. What's your name? Hi, Teacup. Uh, yeah, uh, my name's Teacup, and I'm a big fan. Uh, I was gonna bring you a copy of My Life in Heavy Metal to sign, but I accidentally ate it. Uh, there was some jam on it, and, uh, I'd like to apologize, but also tell you that it was very delicious. Uh, especially chapter two, uh, I'm sorry. You look like you want to say something. Uh, I did say something. I ate your book. Seriously, there are like 40 dogs in here. Uh, I'm kind of freaking out. D- did I take mescaline again and forget? Because I've done that before. I'm just going to back out slowly, very slowly. I got to call my agent. He sent me to a house full of dogs again. Well, he was sure nice. Yeah, he was. But Murakami gave us pig's ears. That's true. Steve Allman, Sean McGrath, Trisha Ferguson, Andrew Harris, and David Ian on sound effects. You can read our next guest's work in The New Yorker, Harper's, McSweeney's, and The New York Times Magazine. She has won more fellowships than you can shake a stick at if you are partial to shaking sticks at things. She's written five books, including The Invisible Circus, Emerald City, and other stories, Look at Me, and the bestseller, The Keep. Her most recent book, A Visit to the Goon Squad, won the 2011 Pulitzer Prize, the National Book Critics Circle Award, the LA Times Book Prize, and Microsoft's Best Book Containing a PowerPoint Presentation. That last one was fake. Please welcome Jennifer Egan to Livewire. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thank you. It's great to have you here. I'm happy to be here. Maybe I won't ask you to give an overview of the book. Um, it's kind of a you complex book. Uh, yeah, it's it's a. I'd say it's a. It takes place over the course of forty years ish, possibly thirteen ish protagonists, maybe ten, but really two sort of main characters, and it's sort of based around the music industry. Is that fairly that's, close? That's great. <laughs> You're doing better than I usually do. Well, within the book, you shift everything from chapter to sh- chapter. You, you shift protagonist, voice, style, point of view. How do you keep a story cohesive when you're doing that? Well, I wasn't sure. I mean, I, I wasn't worrying about that too much as I created it. It happened pretty organically, often by my catching out of the corner of my eye a, a glimpse of a character who seemed interesting and then just wanting to kind of plunge into their lives. I had the idea as I was writing it that the timeline would just go backwards. So I think in my mind, it was sort of simplified by that structure. In fact, then I had, a sto- I had one chapter that took place in the future, so I thought, okay, I'll go backwards and then I'll leap into the future. And I, I liked the thought of that shape. But when I sat down and read it in that order about four months before I you know, finished it all together, I discovered that it was actually very flat. And it, it, it basically didn't work. So my, my, my grand scheme, which made a lot of sense in the sense that there's, it's structured like an album. There's an A side and a B side. And my thought with the backward structure was that the A side would be post 9-11 and the B side would be pre 9-11, which has a nice neatness to it. Unfortunately, the book was flat and boring in that, in that order. So at first I thought, okay, maybe it's just not going to work. Maybe my plan of having these very different feeling and sounding uh, chapters all colliding together and forming something larger just won't happen. Maybe it'll just be a story collection. But then I also thought, I'm losing a lot of opportunities here for little surprises and payoffs for the reader. Why don't I try to just organize it around maximizing those surprises and payoffs? So that was the kind of odd organizing principle I ended up using. Well, and it's so interesting when you just decide to tell a story in a nonlinear way, it obviously just opens up everything to you. You can organize it in any way, really. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that, that the story really demanded to be told in a nonlinear way because I really was interested in a sort of tangle of people over time. And sometimes people have said to me, well, why didn't you just write it like a conventional novel? And I feel like, boy, if I could have done that, that really would have been a feat. I don't know how you would do that. It, was, it had to be, it was a very lateral story. I was inspired by um, certainly Proust's novel, In Search of Lost Time, a very long book, um, and also by the TV show The Sopranos, which I was watching over the same years that I was reading Proust. And I loved the polyphonic quality of The Sopranos, the way that you know a, a peripheral character would suddenly become central. We would kind of didn't really even know what the story was of a particular season, but just watched because it was riveting. And I loved the idea of not really knowing what the, the whole thing was as I, as I wrote it. And what, I, what, what happened when you, would tell, uh, when you would tell a story and, you know, you'd be in one time, one chapter, and maybe 30 years later in the next, this book really captured the sort of heartbreaking nature of the passage of time and how events and people in our lives change us. And I'm wondering what made you want to write about that. Well, I think um, that's a good question. I think part of it, honestly, is technology. I feel like I'm sort of confronted by people from my past much more than I was, say, 10 years ago. And I think we all are having this experience. There's right. this sense of everyone sort of floating back into the picture. Um, or at least you can see what they look like. And um, <laughs> sometimes that's really the most fun. The amazing thing is how we don't change, but everyone around us changes. Mm -hmm. um, so I think maybe that was part of it. I think it was certainly, you know, I mean, when I first tried to read Proust in my early 20s, I thought it was, I loved the obsessive love part. Like I had all the time in the world for Swan and Odette. But when he got to the nostalgia part, I was just tapping my foot. And then in my late 30s, suddenly the idea of time itself being an interesting subject seemed much more the case. One of the things that's been odd about this book is that I never expected younger people to like it for exactly that reason. But I'm starting to think that younger people are more interested in time than I was as a young person. And I wonder again if technology might have something to do with that. That the pace of change is so fast that I'll hear people in you know, 22 talking about how 14-year-olds have such a different relationship to technology than they did. They have cell phones much earlier and they've been on Facebook for years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also I think that, that there's this access now to every, this sort of constant access to everything. And so they have access to images from, you know, from eras 30 years ago just immediately. So their relationship to time is definitely different in that way as well. Yeah, I think, that, I think the idea that this moment is the only moment, which is certainly what I believed in my early 20s, maybe is just not possible to think anymore. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of people have this, uh, a lot of creative people have what's called imposter syndrome. They have this sense that they don't have any idea what they're doing and that someone will eventually reveal them. Does a Pulitzer Prize finally make you immune to that syndrome? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, there's a temptation. I, you know, I, I think it could actually bring on the biggest case of it ever. You know, oh my God, I won this huge prize and I know I don't deserve it and it's going to become obvious with my next book. I think that's really the, the dangerous, the dangerous right. thought pattern. I'm avoiding that by simply not beginning a next book. Um, <laughs> my plan is simply to talk about this one forever. Mm -hmm. um, and that way, no one can say that I didn't deserve it. <laughs> Um, no, I, I, you know, I, I worry about flipping out um, along those lines because I'm, I'm prone to flipping out. But what I, what I say to myself in the moments of worrying about that is that if it happens, I mean, I'm used to laboring, to writing with a sense that I'm, it's not going to work and it's going to be a failure. And so I feel like I can write amidst those conditions. <laughs> I've been sure. doing it for years. <laughs> so we'll see if it can stand up to, uh, to the imposter syndrome. Moving forward. Well, it's interesting. Um, we had David Shields on the show, and, and he wrote Reality Hunger. And he talked about needing for literature to evolve or that it was going to die. And he talked about this sort of pastiche um, style that I feel like this book sort of fits into. Do you feel like when you think about future projects, where, you, where your style might evolve to? I'm not totally sure. I feel like I, I don't begin so much with a sense of a style as a time and a place, and then I feel like out of that comes a voice. It can be very hard to find that voice. Um, 
This, well, this time I had to do it 13 times, but oddly, that wasn't as hard as it was on my last book, which is a kind of gothic thriller, and I really struggled to find the voice for that. So I don't know. I mean, I, I hate the feeling that I'm repeating myself, and I don't like the feeling that I'm repeating anyone else. So, you know, I, I, the excitement of the project really is to find the way that it will be. I have to just say, though, that I, with all due respect to David Shields, I, I don't know what he's talking about. Um, I mean, I feel like, you know, fiction from the very beginning has been so flexible. The novel form is just, it, it is made to kind of um, inhale everything around it and, and use it to its own purposes. So I feel, I mean, actually, maybe, maybe I'm agreeing with him. Maybe I'm saying the novel is a form that has the flexibility and, and strength to absorb and adapt in whatever ways it needs to. I really have a lot of faith in it. I think that people aren't doing what you did with this book, where you, you looked at all these different styles, and, and you did, you, uh, one of the chapters of the book is a, pow- is a PowerPoint presentation. You know, and, and it completely, it's, it tells the story beautifully and poignantly. And what was it about telling that part of the story in a PowerPoint that you couldn't do in a traditional way? Oh, I, there would be no way to tell that story, partly because it is very sweet. And I think it would, it would have been um, sentimental in an alienating way if I'd written it conventionally. It's also, honestly, not much happens in that chapter. But you, you can't really tell because so much happens with PowerPoint as a structure. There right. are so many moments and there's so much girding around it that I was able to kind of slip in this, this very quiet, sweet story. There, there would have been no other way to do it, actually. Well, we're looking forward to the next thing that you do, the next style (laughs) that you create. Uh, The book is A Visit from the Goon Squad. The author is Jennifer Egan. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Livewire Radio. Tonight's show is brought to you in part by the Whole Foods Market and the Whole Kids Foundation, whose goal is to improve children's nutrition and wellness through partnerships with schools, educators, and innovative organizations. Just because our generation's school lunches were borderline radioactive doesn't mean our kids have to be. Information can be found at wholekidsfoundation.org. We'll be right back. And now it's time for some teeny tiny tales, some subatomic stories. It's time for Livewire's Lilliputian Literature. (laughs) Tonight our audience has been given the Herculean task of writing an entire story in just six words based on the prompt, My Life Story. Members of Faces for Radio Theater have chosen their favorites and will now read them with the help of Ralph Huntley. Lilliputian Literature is brought to you by the New Belgium Brewing Company, this month featuring Hoptober Golden Ale. Five hops and wheat malt mashed with rye and oats for a medium-bodied ale, which is good because any more malt and hops and it would have been large-bodied and couldn't fit into its genes. Hoptober Golden Ale, thanks, New Belgium. And now Lilliputian Literature. Okay, David, can I get some horse clumping sounds? And Ralph, your best love child song. I traded cowboy hats for patchouli. Thank you, Bert Kennedy. 
My life story, I think Ralph, uh, a cross between The Last Emperor and Smokey and the Bandit. Asian mother, white boyfriend, state police. Thank you, A. Young Lee. And now our audience member, Morgan Graham. Um, can I have something between uh, highbrow academia and a downward spiral? Recent graduate will work for food. Excellent. Great job, audience, on Lilliputian literature. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Wild Ones.
Wild Ones. Once again, as promised, the man who has been writing the entire hour while we've been hanging out, just shooting the stuff. Please welcome poet Scott Poole. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. Sometimes I get the feeling that I'm a badly cast voice actor of my own stuff. In my head, I sound like Ricardo Maltabon. I may be talking about making egg salad last weekend to an unfortunate coworker, but inside I have a beautiful accent. I'm wearing a white suit. I'm sitting on wicker. I have a tattoo. Not the ink, but a little guy with a lisp following me around, pointing at aircraft. I'm kind of a badass. I learned tonight that I need a better way to communicate. Maybe I just need a writer or a speaker or a town crier or a bailiff or Steve Allman to write a manifesto for me. Maybe I need a screen on my chest, kind of like Twiggy on the old 70s show Buck Rogers had Dr. Theopolis on his chest, hanging from his neck, kind of like a canteen with lights on it, to say the things I really want to say. Whenever Twiggy was asked a really difficult question, Twiggy didn't have to answer. Dr. Theopolis would answer, the quantum phase of that orbit is 5.1. Thank you, Dr. Theopolis. But if I got Steve Allman to speak for me, it would be incredibly beautiful and articulate, passionate and lovely, but I'm afraid I would basically be Twiggy without Dr. Theopolis. But being all intellectual would be equally bad. You ever see someone's cell phone without them just sitting there? It's weird. It's like Twiggy lost his canteen and Dr. Theopolis is just beeping and booping laying on the ground with no one to recognize his brilliance. Don't you just want to pick it up and hang it around your neck and let someone intelligent talk for you for a while? Jennifer Egan, what's your number? <laughs> Thank you. That's our show for tonight. Thank you so much for listening. Our thanks to our great guests tonight, Steve Almond, Jennifer Egan, and Wild One. The Mutton Shops are Ralph Huntley, Paul Evans, and Jim Brunberg. Tonight's show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Dave's Killer Bread, and our newest sponsor, Burgerville. Introducing Burgerville Radio, featuring music from Northwest musicians in all their restaurants. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, and listeners like you find people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. The faces for radio theater are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Hommeister. Performers Andrew Harris and Trisha Ferguson with sound effects by David Ian. Additional show writers are Jason Rouse, house poet Scott Poole, and Ben Coleman. Faces for Radio Theater was directed by Jason Rouse. Our recording engineer is Jonathan Newsom. House sound by Paul O'Brien. Live show lighting by Rhiannon Betts. Production management by Drew Flint. Stage management by Matt King. Show theme by Courtney Vondrele and Ralph Huntley. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. Huge thanks to Greg Netzer and the entire Wordstock Festival staff for another fantastic year. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.